One day, Jesus walked along a lake shore, and he saw two brothers fishing in a boat, and he called out to them. Their names were Simon and Andrew. And Jesus very famously gave them their new mission statement for life. He said, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Simon and Andrew dropped their nets. They left everything, the scripture tells us, and they followed Jesus. Sometime later, that young man named Simon made a stark confession of faith. He said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus was so overjoyed with that confession of faith that he said to Simon, no longer will you be called Simon, but I call you Peter, which means the rock. Well, in a very cruel twist, sometime later, Peter, the rock, denied ever knowing Jesus, denied him entirely when the threat of persecution came calling. And instead of suffering with his Savior, which he bragged about, if everybody abandons you, Jesus, I won't. That same Peter, the rock, just watched Jesus suffer from afar. He kept his distance, and he wept bitterly over his own cowardice. That happened on a Friday. But then that Sunday, just a few short days later, that Sunday, Jesus, who had died, rose again from the grave. He rose in power, and when he called for his disciples to be gathered to him, he was going to meet them. He specifically called for one disciple in particular, not just in general the disciples, but he said, and Peter, and Peter. He called him by name. He wanted to know that he was restoring him. And Jesus did not just restore Peter into his good graces and his fellowship, but he made him an apostle, one of the chief leaders of the early church. And Peter became one of the greatest witnesses for the gospel of Jesus Christ who's ever lived. Now, about 30 years after all of that, the apostle Peter, as he's nearing the end of his life, takes a pen and paper and writes a letter. It's a letter that he's writing to uh, several churches that are scattered around the region of what we call now modern-day Turkey. And it's the letter that we know as 1 Peter. If you're not there already, you can turn to 1 Peter. It's toward the back of your Bible. And Peter writes this letter basically to call uh, suffering Christians in the midst of a hostile and darkened world. He calls them to press in and press on. Press into your faith in Jesus and press on in the midst of your hardship. Don't fall away and don't lose faith. And there's an irony in that, that Peter, who was once a coward, that when suffering came to his doorstep, he denied even knowing Jesus. Now, some years later, he's calling Christians to press on. Don't do what I did. Think about the wonderful truths that we ground our faith in, Peter says, and walk steadily, walk firmly, hold fast. And so what we see in this magnificent letter, 1 Peter, we see um, something that is precious to us in the here and now, written almost 2,000 years ago, but every bit as relevant today as it ever was. What we're going to see as we walk through this book, we're going to see uh, the issues of identity, truth, morality, suffering, marriage, culture. Peter covers all of it. 
He gives us, in essence, if all you had to your name was the little letter of 1 Peter, just a few pages out of your Bible, if that's all you had, in a sense, that would be enough. Because he gives us here the full picture of who we are and what God now calls us to be. And so without further ado, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. What Craig just read for us, we'll read the first two verses together here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens... Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Uh, The first thing that I notice when we look at this, just the very first verse, it's how Peter refers to those who are reading this letter He calls them resident aliens to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout the region. And here's our first point concerning our identity. He gives a statement of identity here. (coughs) Being a Christian has never been cool. No matter how we might want to dress it up, no matter how cool I might want to be personally, being a Christian has never been the pursuit of coolness or applause or approval from the world. These first century Christians right here, they were being marginalized. They were being mocked and persecuted for the sake of their faith in Jesus. And, and you have to recognize that in the early stages of the church, these people are walking around claiming to follow a man who has been crucified on a cross. The foolishness from the culture's perspective of what these people claim to believe, and now they've grounded all of their hope in this? They're being mocked. They're being thought of as as fools and idiots. They're not cool. There's nothing popular about what they're doing here. And Peter is reminding them up front, this is how God set it up. God did not call you to be popular, to fit in, to blend in. To follow Jesus is to be an alien in this world. Someone that from the world's perspective does not belong and does not fit. Now, we're called to love the people of the world with a passionate love. We're called to serve people, to care for people, to fight for justice, right? We're not aloof and uncaring toward the world. But we don't root our hope and our identity in the world. And that's really what it means to be an alien or a stranger in the world. It's not that we're aloof and uncaring, but we don't root our identity and our hope in the here and now as if this world is all there is. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says our true citizenship is in heaven, not here. And, you know, honestly, I've spent a lot of my life, maybe a majority of my 35 years, I've spent trying so hard to be cool and to have people like me. And this, I mean, right off the bat, Peter gives me a sucker punch to my ego here. Kyle, you are an alien in this world. You're a stranger here. The goal is not to be cool. The goal is to know and follow Jesus Christ. And that's not going to earn you a lot of points in the world necessarily. And that's okay. Embrace your identity up front, Peter says. You're aliens. You're (laughs) scattered about. This is who you are. Okay? And then Peter quickly shows us what makes us aliens and strangers. It's not just that we look and act different and the world doesn't understand us. There's something that's actually happened to us here. Look at the end of verse 1 as to what we are. He says, who, that's you, are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. There's so much in that verse 
we can't even, I mean, we just scratched the surface of it today. I'll just warn you up front. Two things that I want us to see from the end of verse 1 and verse 2. Uh, you may have heard before the, this concept of God as Trinity. Uh, the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible. It was a word, though, that was created within the early church to try to explain something that really defies our understanding and our imagination. That God is triune. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. It's a great mystery. But right here in 1 Peter 1, we see the outworking of the Trinity. Do you see this? That God the Father chose us. God the Spirit sanctifies us or sets us apart. And then God the Son saves us by the sprinkling of his blood, Father, Spirit, and Son. And Peter is actually using Old Testament language here to make the connection for us. You may not be well-schooled in the Old Testament, but Peter was because Peter was a Jew. Peter uh, came from the lineage of the Jewish people, and so he might have had, for all we know, a good portion of the Old Testament memorized, known it by heart. But Peter is using the language of, of God's activity with the people of Israel from the Old Testament, that God the Father chose the people of Israel, the Scripture tells us, to be his special people, called out from all the nations of the earth. And God also sanctified Israel. He purified them by being with them. Though they were not a mighty nation, though there was nothing about them that the other nations would admire, God chose these little people to be his special people that he was going to endow with his grace and he was going to lead them into the promised land. If you look, uh, not now, but anytime at some point, if you want to look at Exodus 24, Exodus 24, you'll find some of this language, especially the latter part of verse 2, which talks about the sprinkling of blood. Uh, that's not a New Testament idea. That's an Old Testament idea. In Exodus 24, it talks about that God has a covenant love. Covenant means a binding, intimate promise that God has made with his people. That the sprinkling of blood represents sin and forgiveness, sin and atonement, that they would sprinkle the blood of animals on an altar. And that blood would represent their sorrow and their repentance concerning their sin God would receive that sacrifice and grant forgiveness to Israel. It was a temporary forgiveness. It was a shadow of the full reality that was to come. But that's where Peter is, is bringing this language to bear here. Now, he's not really trying to show us so much about the Old Testament as he is about the new. Not the Old Covenant, but the New Covenant, which was instituted by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So I want you to see the connection here. Notice what God has done here. God has foreknown and chosen us because we are descended from Israel. Is that true? Probably not anybody in this room is an ethnic Jew. But guess what? Irrespective of your genealogy, irrespective of your family tree, of your bloodline, God has chosen and foreknown us. That means that from every tongue, tribe, and nation, not one ethnic people group, but from all the four corners of the earth, people from the United States and from China, people from Australia and from Botswana and from Brazil, everywhere that people draw breath is, is open to God's choosing and saving work now. It's not limited to one people. It's open now to all. And now the Spirit has set his seal upon us. And here's the interesting thing. The Spirit of God, we may think of the Spirit of God as kind of a hovering power or being, but under the new covenant, 
as to what Jesus has actually given to us, the Spirit doesn't just hover around us. The, the Spirit comes to dwell within us. That to be sanctified by the Spirit means that God's very Spirit purifies you and sets you apart as God's dear child by coming to indwell you. And there's nothing more intimate than that. That's how much the new covenant overwhelms the old, that the Spirit of God dwells in everyone who has faith in Jesus. And then the sprinkling of blood still applies now. Peter says it's the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, not the sprinkling of an animal's blood to grant temporary forgiveness, but the shedding of the blood of one man for all sinners for all time. Jesus, when he died on the cross, the Scripture says that he bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and now live to righteousness. Because Jesus Christ has died on your behalf, it applies now to all your sins for all time. Do you see how the new is greater than the old in that regard? And this is an intimacy, I just said this, this is an intimacy that we cannot exaggerate. That God would know you before there was a you to know. Only God can do that. That he would choose you and set his affections on you. That he would make his spirit to dwell within you. Me? Does God know the condition of my heart? Sure he does. And he gave me a spirit anyway. Irrespective of, of how worthy I was, God put his spirit in me. It wasn't about my worthiness. It was about his love. And he shed his own blood to forgive sinners. There's no more intimate relationship. Many people, when they think of the concept of God, he winds up the universe and then he walks away. That's not the God of the Bible. He is right with you. He is even within you now. And so before we move on, I, I, there's a little phrase in verse 2 I don't want to skip. I mean, this is, this is amazing. But there's a, little, there's a little part in verse 2 that's easy to walk past, and I've walked past it many times. That in all of God's love and grace and intimacy here, there's something that Peter has actually called us to do, something that God produces in us, but that is now our responsibility. You may notice it, a little phrase that says, to obey Jesus Christ. That God the Father chose you, that he sanctifies you with his spirit, he sprinkled you with his blood, and he's done all that in, uh, in the, with the goal, with the outcome that you and I would now obey Christ. Peter is using that little phrase in the context of salvation, not that you obey Jesus in order to earn your salvation. We know that's not true. But it's part and parcel with salvation that those who have been saved, it's not merely a spiritual transaction that God takes away my sin and he gives me his grace and righteousness. Yes, but he also brings transformation of character and transformation of heart. See, that's what it is to be saved. It's not merely a spiritual transaction, but it, it takes deep roots in us and it changes now our, our, our affections. It changes our desire and it changes our direction. We now, not a perfect obedience. No, I don't know anybody who perfectly obeys Jesus. But there is a sincere obedience. There is a, now a desire that wasn't there before. And the reason I point to that little bitty phrase in verse 2 is that it's, it's, it's important for us to grasp here in the Bible Belt, here in the Deep South. And here's why. Much of the Christian landscape around here, and much, much of what a lot of us grew up around, is based around altar calls, uh, asking Jesus into your heart, walking down an aisle, praying a sinner's prayer. Okay? I don't demonize that stuff as if it's bad, but it's dangerous, and I'm going to tell you why. 
Because a lot of people, and as a pastor, I see this all the time, a lot of people have an idea that in an emotional state, in a guilty state, I'll pray a prayer, raise my hand, walk down an aisle, and that somehow makes me a Christian. But can you, can you appreciate how confusing and how dangerous it is for a person who, in that case, maybe has not actually experienced conversion and salvation, their heart has not been changed, and yet now they think that they're a Christian. A person who goes about life now assuming something is there, but the reality does not support it. And I don't say that to demean anybody. It's just that it's, it's very common. It's very prevalent in our culture. It's one of the reasons the culture at large says the church is full of hypocrites. The church, the church is full of, you know, and, and they go through the list of all these ills and evils that the church is responsible for. Well, I can't argue with that, frankly. And part of the reason that that's true is because many churches are all around, but in the South especially, many churches are filled with people who think they're Christians and they're not. Because their heart has not been fundamentally changed, transformed by the grace of Jesus, they, their, their life has not shown any difference in terms of their desire and their direction. But the church, and I can be responsible for this too, the church has pacified. No, you walk down the aisle, therefore you're saved. And I, I say that as a warning to us. Because if, if the sincere desire of my heart has not shifted in the direction of Jesus Christ, then it doesn't matter how many aisles I've walked down, how many times I've been baptized. It's got to be operational in my heart. Not perfect, hear me on that, but it's got to be creating change. And, and if, if there are any of us in this room, Peter wrote another letter, 2 Peter. In 2 Peter 1, he says, make certain of God's calling and choosing you. Go back to the beginning if you need to and see that you have really experienced the grace of Jesus to change your heart. Because many of us have not. And I was guilty of that too for years and years. Assuming something, but the reality wasn't there. Okay? It's a danger here. We need to be aware of it. Okay. I've beaten that dead horse. Let's move on. So we, we have to grasp the identity that Jesus Christ has given us. It's an identity that creates a radical change. It changes everything about us. That's why Simon became Peter. There was, when he confessed Jesus Christ, Jesus changed his name. Representative of a change that, that, that is all-encompassing, okay? And now, because we grasp the power of our, of our new identity, Peter wants us to also grasp the hope of our inheritance, okay? Look at verse 3. Who we are now, but where we ground our hope. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. <clears throat> So we remember what Peter has already told us about ourselves. We are resident aliens, which means our hope is not rooted in this world. And so the question becomes, okay, where then is our hope established? What is it that gives us hope in, frankly, at, at times, a very hopeless world and a seemingly hopeless existence, right? Where is our hope anchored? And the answer is this in verse 3. God, in his great mercy, has caused you... His work, not yours, has caused you to be born again to a living hope. For so long, 
I assumed that being a Christian very simply meant I try my best to love God and I try my best to be a good person. And that's what most people believe that Christianity is at its core. That's just, that's, that's what we are. That's what I thought. But verse three makes it so wonderful and clear as to what it means to be a Christian, that God in his mercy, not your effort, in his mercy, God has recreated you. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless you are born again, you cannot truly know God and enter God's kingdom. You have to be born a second time, born anew. God recreates us. He does not give you an improved version of your former self. That's not Christianity. He gives you an entirely new life altogether. He gives you, in a sense, a new name. And that living hope comes to us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to come back to this in a second. Let's just take a step back from the Bible for a second. Okay, Dangerous, I know, but we'll just think with me here. Why is hope so important? Why is a living hope so important to us? If you think about the world at large, and this is true for every human heart, this is not just people out there, everybody in here too. Human beings have to have hope. A human being can hardly live without hope. Without hope, a human being just shuts down entirely. We've got to have something that we hope for, and more, and more than that, we've got to have something or someone that we hope in. We've got to ground our hope somewhere, and we do, of course, as human beings, what's natural to us, we look around us and we look for hope. And so where can I find my hope as an anchor for my life? Well, I can find it in myself, I can find it in my own pursuit of achievements or pursuit of applause or the approval of others. Um, some people, strangely, seek their hope in the government or some agency, some social cause, perhaps, that they think can solve the world's problems if we just tinker with it enough. That's our hope. Uh, a lot of people put their hope in a relationship. If someone will just love me and accept me, then I'll be enough. Or they put their hope in their career or, or in a certain amount of income. We all do this because we have to have hope. The problem, one of the many problems with that perspective, is that every hope turns out to be a dead end. And we fool ourselves into thinking, surely this time this thing will not let me down. But every single time in the temporal universe that we inhabit face to face, every hope that we have lets us down. Every hope will die out. Every hope will eventually go bankrupt. And here's the really sad thing. Even when we do fulfill the hope that we anchored ourselves to, even when we do reach the end of the rainbow, we do get the job we wanted, we do reach the income level we hope for, we do marry the person we hope to marry, we get to the end of that rainbow and we find out there's no pot of gold there. Even our fulfilled hopes, we find out, are not as great as we hoped them to be. Read Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, if you don't believe me, written exclusively almost to that end that there is no good hope in the here and now that will ever fully satisfy us. Every hope fades, every hope passes, but a living hope is something that's eternal. A living hope is something that by definition cannot fade or pass away or diminish because it's something beyond us. It's something beyond our circumstances. You cannot root your hope in this world, but you can root your, root your hope in a person, Jesus Christ, and the reason we can put our hope in him, Peter says, is because he has risen from the grave. He has risen from the grave. That means that he holds within himself a hope that cannot die. 
that cannot be extinguished, that cannot be tarnished or diminished, a hope that cannot fade because He Himself is the victor over death and darkness and all temporary things. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave, victorious and glorious now forever. And so when we put our hope in Him, it's therefore, by definition, it's a hope that cannot die. It's a living hope, a hope with an everlasting heartbeat and a hope that cannot let us down. Do you see why it's a living hope? Uh, there's a, a great book. Some of y'all have read this book. I'm going to recommend it. Uh, it's called The Hiding Place. This is a book written by a lady named Corey Ten Boom. She and her family were thrown together into a Nazi concentration camp during the Holocaust. Not because they themselves were Jewish, but because they were housing and protecting Jews who were on the run from Hitler's armies. And so when they were caught... Her family were thrown into the concentration camp alongside the Jews. And this is an amazing story about her experience in that very dark and terrible place. Uh, she and her sister uh, prevailed in, in, in every conceivable way. They, they did not allow the death camps to blot out their hope and their light. And there comes a point in the story where a Nazi lieutenant, an, an officer, begins to interrogate Corey concerning her activities in the camp. He wants to understand who she is and what's motivating her. And Corey builds up the courage in that moment to mention the Bible to him. Very risky thing for her to do. She mentions God. And the lieutenant doesn't want to hear it. He shoes her away. He sends her away in that moment. But the next morning, he himself comes to her cell, unlocks it, and begins to walk with her through the courtyard. And I'm going to read a little section here of this conversation that Corey Ten Boom has with Lieutenant Roms, the Nazi officer. He says, I could not sleep last night thinking about that book where you've read such different ideas. What else does it say in there? Corey speaks, She's writing. On my closed eyelids, the sun glimmered and blazed. It says, I began slowly, that a light has come into this world so that we need no longer walk in the dark. Is there darkness in your life, Lieutenant? There was a very long silence. There is great darkness, he said at last. I cannot bear the work I do here. Then all at once he was telling me about his wife and children in a town called Bremen, about their garden and their dogs, their summer hiking vacations. He says, Bremen was bombed again last week. Each morning I ask myself, are they still alive? Corey says, there is one who has them always in his sight, Lieutenant Roms. Jesus is the light the Bible shows to me. The light that can shine even in such darkness as yours. What is a living hope? A living hope is something strong enough that no Nazi death camp can take it away. It's a living hope that propels this woman to share Christ with a man who could have had her shot or gassed with a single word. See, Corey's hope was alive because she knew her Savior was alive. What did she have to fear in the worst place humanly imaginable, a concentration camp, what did she have to fear if her Savior had already risen from the grave and blazed the trail before her? 
The Apostle Paul said it like this, if Jesus has not been raised, we are of all people in the world the most to be pitied. Shame on us for, li for living out such fairy tale imagination. But if he has been raised, if he has risen from the grave, verse 4 says, you obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's just piling on here. I mean, it's getting to the point where it seems too good to be true, doesn't it? That God, God chose you, Jesus died for you, His Spirit fills you and sanctifies you, God's mercy gives you new life, His resurrection fills you with all hope. And if that's not enough, there's also an eternal weight of glory, an inheritance that awaits us far beyond all comparison, beyond our imagination, and it exists in heaven forever for you. Where does it even end? And Peter says it doesn't. And that's the whole point. That's why it's a living hope. You see why it's called a living hope? Do you see why Peter would want suffering Christians in the face of a hostile culture to grasp these truths? Why he would want them to ground their lives in these truths? Do you see why Peter would want us to know these things? Y'all, this, this is still the greeting. I mean, we, we're, not, we're just a few verses into the, to the book as a whole. I mean, this, it's an amazing thought that Peter piles on for us, not only who we are in terms of our identity, but where we ground our hope, the very, the very anchor of the soul that in the midst of a dark and broken world, Peter says, you press in and you press on because you have a faith that provides a living hope in a salvation that is still yet to come. What you have now is beyond imagination. Oh, but what is to come will defy your greatest imagination too. And so does that mean, and let's, let's close by trying to apply this a little bit. Peter says there's a living hope. That's present tense. That's now. That's not one day. That's now. We have a living hope. Okay? But he also says that there's an inheritance reserved for you, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So he's pointing his readers not to today only, but to ultimately to something beyond this life and beyond this world, right? And so we have to recognize Peter's encouragement to these aliens and strangers, his encouragement to us. We have to sift through this a little bit to really understand where he's getting. Because here's what he's not saying. This is not a soft prosperity gospel that says, life's going to get better for you if you just love God. Peter can't promise that to these people. He doesn't know what's going to happen to them. They're already being persecuted and maligned for their faith. They may be killed tomorrow. It happened. It happened all the time in the, in the New Testament. It still happens today, just not so much here. Peter can't make them that promise. He, so his, the message here is, you have a living hope, so therefore, just hold on, and things will get better tomorrow. Any Wilson Phillips fans from 1990 in the room? <laughs> Don't you know things will change? Things will go your way if you hold on for one more day? Great song. I'm not ashamed. That's not the message. Life may not get better for them in the here and now, okay? But neither is Peter saying, oh, just hunker down and wait till heaven gets here, because won't it be great? Just do your best to try to keep the evil away and hold tight until you die, because then it's really going to be great. 
as if to say, you don't really belong in this world, and so just keep the world at arm's length the best you can, and one day God will make it all worth it. Okay? Neither one of those messages is true. It's not a promise of better circumstances, and it's not a, a desire to hold on because heaven's going to be great, and we just kind of have to just get through this life. I want to point you back to the end of verse 2. I skipped over this on purpose because I wanted to bring us back to us. Here's what Peter's telling us in the moment. Right? The end of verse 2, Peter has already told us we've been chosen by God, sanctified by the Spirit, uh, sprinkled with the blood of Christ. This is who we are. But then he gives a little prayer, a little bitty prayer. It doesn't even look like a prayer as you read it in the Scripture. But at the end of verse 2, he says, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now, what does that mean? Grace and peace in the fullest measure means God is not going to do anything more for you than what he has already done in Christ. Now, that may sound strange. That may even sound wrong, okay? But hear me when I say this. Grace and peace. Does God bless us uniquely day by day? Of course. Will he bless you uniquely tomorrow? I believe he will, okay? But in terms of grace and peace, think about this. Fullest measure. Can God give you any more grace than what you already have as a person who has faith in Jesus Christ who died and was raised again on your behalf? Is there something better God could have done for us than the sending of his own beloved son? Is there more that he's holding out on us? You have it in fullest measure. Peace. I need peace, sure. But is there any more peace available to us, really and truly, than to those who ground our lives and our hope in a God who is so good that he would reserve everlasting glory in the presence of Christ himself forever and ever for us? And he says, that is your inheritance and it cannot be faded or dissipated. It cannot be lost. You cannot unearn it because you didn't earn it to begin with. It's yours. Is there any more peace available to us? Is, any, is God holding anything out on you better than that? May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. We have, Paul said it in Ephesians 1 like this, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There's no more grace, there's no more peace that we need that somehow God has held back from us. All that we have from Him in His choosing and His sanctifying and His sprinkling of His Son's blood is the fullest measure God has to give, and you have it right now. Now, if that's true, think about how much we have to offer the world. Are we aliens and strangers? Yes, but does that mean we push the world back and just try to stay pure until heaven comes? No, think about how we can actually influence the world concerning the things that God has given us. Think about this. Who should be more joyful than those who know Jesus? Not a fake plastic happiness but true, deep, lasting, real joy. Who should be more joyful than a Christian? Do you think this world needs some joy right now? Who should be more generous than those who know they have an eternal inheritance that money cannot buy us? What is money when we consider the riches of Jesus Christ reserved in heaven for us? Do you think understanding that would make us more generous in the here and now? Do you think our world needs more generosity? less tight-fistedness and more generous people. Who should be more generous than a Christian? 
Who should be more merciful than people who have received the ultimate mercy in Christ, people who were once far off but have now been brought near, unworthy as we were? Doesn't our world need more mercy? Who should be more courageous than those who trust in a Savior who himself has risen from the grave? Enough courage to speak the gospel to an SS officer who holds your life in his hands. Who should be more courageous than a Christian? Doesn't our world need more courage? Who should be more hopeful than a person whose hope is grounded in God's goodness, not in our circumstances? Doesn't our world need hope? We've got a lot to offer. Because of who we are and because of where our hope is anchored, we are aliens and strangers, yes, but there's another meaning to that term. Not just that we're different and the world doesn't like us, but there's something that ought to be true of us now that because we are aliens in this world, we cannot therefore blend in. We cannot uh, be explained. We can't be understood. The world may not like me for who I am, but they should not be able to dismiss me. Peter's going to tell us later on in this very same book, let your behavior be such that even those who malign you as evildoers, because of your good works, they're going to turn and glorify God one day because you were such a sterling example of what it is to be a Christian. Okay? We're going to come to that in a few weeks. That's our calling. We have something to offer the world because we are aliens. This is not an antagonistic thing. This is an opportunity for engagement. We have something to give to the world around us that has no explanation apart from a divine origin. You have an indestructible identity. You have an unfading inheritance. These are gifts for you to enjoy, yes, but they are also gifts for you to offer. Are we living a kind of life that, is, that has an indestructible identity and an unfading inheritance? Let's pray that God would make us more and more that way. Father, we ask that in this moment, you would root these truths deeply in our hearts. Peter's uh, audience was suffering. We may be suffering in various ways right now. I don't know. Um, I don't know that we're being persecuted in the way that they were. But Lord, the, the truth that was true then is true now. And it's true enough, Lord, that if we would let it become the solid rock of our foundation for life, that it doesn't matter what comes our way. It doesn't matter what, what means of suffering or persecution or trial or difficulty. Anything, Lord, that we face circumstantially is no match for this. And so, Father, would you make our hearts open to receive it? We, some of us in this room have been Christians a long time. But Lord, we, we have not really received and embraced these truths at the deepest level, perhaps. And I pray, Lord, that even now, you would open us up to it. A living hope. There's something about us, Lord, that we did not concoct. We didn't produce this. You produce it in us. And I pray, Lord, that it would shine brightly. And Father, I ask that you would be merciful to us in our feeble attempts to be obedient to you, sometimes we just stumble all over ourselves. <coughs> but Lord, you chose us, you set us apart by indwelling us, and you cover us with your forgiving blood that we might be obedient to you. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, even in little ways, in little steps day by day, 
to turn our hearts to Jesus Christ, to love and obey Him as He deserves. And Father, make much of Yourself through this church. Father, um, we might look around and say, what can, what can this number of people actually do? And the answer is, Lord, so much, so much because of the hope that is within us. Let's apprehend it. Let's take hold of it and let's live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.